0: Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Call me old-fashioned, but there is nothing more beautiful than a bride on her wedding day. And I'm not even just talking about my bride, though she was the most beautiful bride that has ever existed on a wedding day. I am talking about everyone's. It's a strange thing, you know, and... Uh, I have this real problem in that I have chosen a profession that, as a corollary, also comes with it that I officiate weddings, and so I oftentimes get to see the bride when the doors open. I'm like the very first person in the room. And everybody at that point, it's a weird thing. They're kind of all looking forward at, you know, the groom and the groomsman and me standing up there on the stage, and then they have to all make this shift. But before that, I have this moment where it's basically just me up here. I have an even better view than the groom down on the ground, you know, because they do that weird walk up a couple steps kind of thing a lot of times. But anyway, I see the bride coming in, and it is breathtaking, heartbreaking every single time. I don't know what it is about it. I have to like legitimately fight to not be tearing up because I'm just so excited for this couple. There is the bride coming in and everybody's looking up at me thinking like, what's wrong with this weirdo? Does he think that he's getting married just because he's standing up there? It is a very, very strange experience, but I can't stop it. I'm up there and you know, trying to hold it together, trying to like make sense of it all. I'm like... (laughs) dearly beloved. No. And it's not even like the time to cry during the wedding, right? But it happens almost every single time because it is such a beautiful picture. It is a like singular, unparalleled in our society picture of devotion. It is unlike anything else in our culture. In that moment, Something truly, transcendently beautiful happens. Now we love movies about like first dates and falling in love, and you know overcoming these struggles of love. We also love movies where we see people like you know sacrifice themselves out of love or something like that. Like, like those are all really, really beautiful pictures, and those are the things that we love to like throw into movies. And maybe it's because like you know weddings have become kind of trite and commonplace that we don't really like think about them that way. But I would still argue. That standing in the back of a church and then walking past everyone you know and love to say, above all else, I'm committing myself to this one other person for the rest of our lives. It's just a beautiful picture that really, really, really does not compare to anything else. It's a it's a great picture of the gospel and a great picture of the move that Jesus has made for us and that he gave up every single thing that he had so that we would be his beloved, so that we would join in with him. And oddly enough, he actually uses this picture pretty commonly throughout uh, speaking about his followers. He refers to uh, himself as the bridegroom often in scripture. And everyone else is invited to this big feast that he is hosting and he is throwing. He says that his very presence as the bridegroom is cause for celebration. And then in Revelation, in the renewed city of Jerusalem, where all of the believers, all of the redeemed will one day live, he refers to that home as the bride of the Lamb. And there's actually this really beautiful picture in, in Revelation where John is sitting there sort of recording all of this. And the angel looks at him and he says, are you ready? Are you ready to meet the bride of the lamb, and then they show up at the final city, the ultimate city, our final heavenly home. And he says, this is it. Look, look upon, gaze upon its beauty. But nowhere else do we see this as a metaphor for the church more clearly presented than in uh, Paul's work in Ephesians. He says this, and oftentimes we use this passage and we really just hone in on what it says about husbands and wives, but I think what he is saying about the church is actually even more profound. He says this in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, the church is not to be understood just as some sort of organization. It's definitely not meant to be used, as we use it pretty commonly in America, as synonymous with a building. The church is not a building. It is the people. It's not meant to be some sort of philosophical thing, or some sort of religious choice, like, you know, you could choose this one religion or the other. No, very often in Scripture... The church is so much larger, so much bigger, so much more beautiful than our simple brains can hold. And so because of that, often metaphor is the best language that we can use to wrap our minds around what the church actually is. That's actually the point of this entire series. We're doing a deep dive to try and understand uh, five central metaphors that really define the church. So that we can answer the question what the church is, both now and historically, and How the church reacts to a new world that is unfolding before our very eyes. Today we're going to be talking about being the bride of Christ. We are the one that He has chosen. We are the one that He has sacrificed Himself for. We are the one that He gave His life to cleanse, to make right, to justify in the eyes of the Lord. We are the ones that He died on the cross to save. Because of that, He calls us His bride. Now, the church was actually born in Acts chapter 2. Jesus died on the cross. He uh, paid the sins, or paid the price for all the sins of mankind. He initiated the kingdom of God. Then he uh, appeared to his followers. He then ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit descended down from heaven as a guide and supernatural tool for the church. And at that moment, Peter then shares to a gathered crowd, and thousands come to follow Jesus. And then after that happens, so that's all like pretty dramatic, right? I mean, it's like a crucial turning point in all of human history at that moment. The church is born. This is how Luke decides to sum it up. And it's actually going to be uh, our central text through all five sessions of this uh, discussion we're having on the church. He says this. Tending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It's amazing to me that something so earth shattering, uh, so history shaping, could be caught in a simple paragraph penned by Luke here. He had previously, you know, mentioned story elements and the rest of the book of Acts. He would tell like the story later on of like these heroes of faith, right? He tells about Peter and he tells about Paul and a few other people throughout Acts and sort of the birth of the church. He would like zone in on those like, you know, individual stories and just sort of extrapolate. But here he takes thousands of people all gathered together in Jerusalem and he says they got saved and then this is what they look like. This is what they did. Now think about that for a moment. These were thousands, literally, of individuals... And In fact, it says uh, earlier when Peter was speaking that uh, there were three thousand people in attendance, and we don't even know necessarily whether that was just three thousand men. So then uh, it was common to just count the men back then, which means that it could be upwards of nine thousand people total if you you know imagine there's one woman, one child for each of these men. But who really knows? Either way, thousands of individual stories, and they were people, right? Not just numbers. They were people like me and you. They all had stories. They all had history. They all came to Jerusalem for one reason. And left with a whole new life purpose. Uh, They had names. They had histories. They had families. They had traditions. They had an old way of living. They probably had plans. They probably had dreams and hopes and predictions for the future. They had ideas of how their life was going to go. They probably had addictions and coping mechanisms and sins they had kept alive for their entire lives. Uh, They had things that they were using to help them get through life, right? Like, they probably had ways of sort of self-care and self-help. And then all of a sudden, they have an intersection with Jesus. He comes and he collides with their life, and from that moment on, nothing was ever the same. In fact, they get wrapped up into this whole paragraph. Like, none of them came to Jerusalem thinking, you know, it'd be nice. I might go and show up to the Passover or, you know, I might go because I heard they're they're having a feast or something like that. And then all of a sudden... Uh, they were like, you know what would be cool is if I gave up everything that I had and shared my possession with a bunch of strangers. Or you know what would be cool is if I started you know, sitting in the temple and listening to these guys talk for hours and hours on so that I can learn about this Jesus guy. No one had intentions for that. It just happened to them. And that's really the power of Jesus. That he could come in, that he could intersect with their lives, that he could collide with them. And from there... They're immediately changed. They're no longer the same. And you can't explain this away by, you know, oh, they heard, like, some really, you know, good, like, philosophy, or they said, oh, you know what? This religion sounds a little bit better than the religion that I was using, so I think I'll switch. Now, the only explanation is that someone loved them more than they had ever been loved before, and that love, in fact, transformed them. That love changed them to where now they could no longer figure out how to live their life without responding in love back to this Jesus. They, in that moment, became the bride of Christ, his beloved, his His bride that he died for. That's why the central idea for today is that the church as the bride of Christ is defined by their devotion to Jesus. That in hearing the good news and responding by changing everything that they had, everything that they were, this early church, this birth of the church is defined by being madly in love with Jesus so much that nothing else really matters. Now, this may seem like redundant or unnecessary, right, to say that the Christian church is to be defined by their love of Jesus. That kind of makes sense, right? It's right there in the name. But it's vitally important and important, and easy to forget. We're not an organization. We're not a non-profit. We're not a, you know, 501c3 registered in the state of Colorado. We're not a social benefit club. We're not a meetup. We're not even a religion. The church is best captured in the image of a bride standing at the back of the church walking towards the man of their dreams, a man who loves them more than they could ever know or appreciate, the one who gave everything for them. And here's what that devotion led the early church to do. And perhaps what was one of his last one-on-one conversations with Peter? uh, Jesus asked, hey Peter, do you love me? Peter said yes, and then Jesus asked him two more times, and Peter starting to get frustrated, yes, 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 and Peter sort of shouts out, yes, I love you, Lord, and every time that Peter would respond that he actually loved Jesus, Jesus would respond that he should feed his sheep, which is actually another metaphor for the church, which we're going to get into in another week. So Peter did. He led the church out of his love for Jesus. And then the church followed out of their love for Jesus by devoting themselves to learning scripture and the teaching of the people who knew Jesus. Uh, the, they devoted themselves to praying and participating in God's movement in the world, to sharing meals, to sharing possessions, to sharing lives, to caring for others, and to continuing to praise God as an outflow for their love for Him. So the question that we have to answer as the church today, as the same church that was started thousands of years ago in Jerusalem, the same church that is alive and well in each and every one of you today, is what is our love for Jesus leading us to do? Like we see how it looked in Acts chapter 2, and those things are still present in the church today. But I think what we're going to do through this whole series is, is sort of break it down into, into sort of two chunks. So we've talked so far about what happened in the early church, what that actually looked like for them. And now we have to ask ourselves, what is the new toolkit for the church? What new tools are we going to need to be able to be the church in this new future? And I don't think that the church is an organization that just sort of, you know, changes willy-nilly. At its core, you know, there are a few things that we have to stick through, or stick to, which is what we're sort of doing and highlighting through this series. But the church is also an organization that has lasted through so many historical and economic and uh, cultural events, more than any other organization probably on the planet, and here it is today. It's survived splits, it's survived controversy, it's survived uh, cultural shifts, it's survived all of this stuff, and still it stands. So, what we have to figure out is the exact same thing that every generation of the church before us has had to figure out. And that is simply this. How do we adhere to being the church, to staying the same historic Acts 2 church that we see while adapting to today's challenges? And I don't think that our challenges are any harder than any other generation. Every generation has had to face their struggles. It's funny to think through, you know, everyone's comparing like, you know, this pandemic and thinking like the Spanish flu in 1918. But if you think about it, not in terms of America, but in terms of the church, the church has already faced plagues and pandemics, uh, maybe even similar or at least comparable to this COVID kind of crisis. The church has faced so much other stuff. So I'm not trying to say that, you know, what we're facing right now is harder than anything that the church has faced before. But I am saying that it is unique. That right now there are philosophical and cultural shifts in America that presents threats to the church that actually are in direct disagreement with some of the core beliefs of the church. Also, right now, mistrust of organizations and structures and things like that is at an all-time high uh, in our lifetime. And this is just in our, you know, young life of many of us in our church, or at least in my lifetime, I guess I can say, uh, we have shifted from the church being one of the cornerstones of sort of a healthy community and society to being something that is largely. Uh, ignored, maybe mistrusted, maybe just sort of uh, not seen as necessary in our society anymore. I feel like that's pretty safe to say. And in many cases, this is something that is reviled, something that is actually disdained by many many people who would wish that churches don't even exist in their community. And on top of all of that, uh, there's a pandemic sweeping the world. That disrupts the natural standard rhythm of the church that has been present at least for our generation, at least for our lifetime. To where now the things that we took for granted, the church being able to do every single week, now all of a sudden we aren't able to do in the exact same way. So it's up to you, and it's up to me, and it's up to everyone who is a part of the church right now to be able to ask Jesus the question, what are you leading us to do and be? What are the new tools we're going to need to perpetuate the church into the next generation? Today, we're only talking about one tool. And as the bride of Christ, The tool that we need, the thing that's going to help us to be devoted, the thing that is going to help us to be able to be uh, the church for the next generation, is we are going to have to remember, and this is not a new tool, but I think it is going to look differently for our generation. We're going to have to remember what it looks like to cultivate love through worship. Now, we as human beings are hardwired for worship. It comes naturally to us. It's sort of our default position. Like think about this, how weird is it that people will wait for their like favorite, you know, band to come out after a concert just so they can catch a glimpse of them and sort of shout in their face or think about what we'll do to sort of dress, dress up in like crazy colors and show up early in the morning just to get out there and support our favorite sport team or, or sports team whatever it is, you know. Uh, we as human beings just naturally desire to worship. And not, don't even get me started on social media, right? Like that entire industry that entire world is just based on worshiping one another. Now we make worship sound like such a foreign concept, but in fact, all it really is, is just the way in which we show our love. What we love is what we worship and what we worship is what we love. And as the bride of Christ, one of the responsibilities and even sort of privileges that we have as the church is the ability to worship Jesus and the reason why that's a privilege for us and not just, you know, some sort of weight that lands on us because Jesus is actually the only thing on the planet that is 100% fully worth our worship. See, anything else that we put our worship in, our our sports team, our favorite band, anything on social media, whatever it may be for you, whatever it is for any of us, all of those things are, are pretty fallible, right? Like, really, worshiping a sports team is kind of the silliest thing ever because it's a constantly cycling cast of different people. Really, you're, like, worshiping the owner of that sports team saying, oh, I think you're making wise decisions. Or really, maybe it's that down to the close, you know? Like, just making sure you have the right icon on is really what you're worshiping, I think at that point because inevitably your favorite quarterback uh your favorite striker whatever it is they're going to leave that team the coach is going to leave whoever's going to leave and you're going to be stuck you know just making sure you're still wearing the same colors that's really what you're worshiping at the end of the day all of the things that we can worship of this world are hollow but jesus is not And in fact, if you sort of, you know, step back and take this like universe-wide view, at the end of the day, really the only thing that is worth worshiping is the one thing that is perfect, the one thing that is the creator of the universe and us, and the one thing that built in us, hardwired in us, this desire to worship so that we might return that worship straight back to Him and in so doing find the only path to satisfaction, to joy, and to meaning in this life. I mean think about it if God created us with this desire to worship then he himself is the only thing that is actually perfect and worthy of worship then the only way that we can actually live as we were meant to live is to worship that God but it's difficult to do sometimes we talked about this uh, during our how to be series when we talked about uh, what it means to be a worshiper but one of the most difficult things and I think it's particularly difficult for the way in which we like to think about desires and initiative and willpower is that it's difficult to make ourselves or to sort of like force ourselves to discipline ourselves to actually love something. It's difficult to sort of cultivate that love inside of ourselves. And so something that the church has done for thousands and thousands of years, since its beginning and even uh, having further sort of reaching back into the Old Testament, uh, something that believers and followers of God have always done is worship. We do this in, in two ways. One is corporately and one is privately. Corporate worship may be what you think of when we talk about like a Sunday morning worship gathering. And part of, you know, being a new toolkit or having a new tool for the future of the church is asking ourselves the question, what is really, really important about gathering together for corporate worship? You know, uh, in some level, we haven't been able to do this to the full expression. And even now we're having to try and try to find creative ways uh, to be able to do this corporate. And so it should be forcing us to ask the question, what is truly important? And you know what I've realized? In my own life, the thing that I think has suffered the most uh, during COVID and during all of the, the sort of quarantine and missing out on corporate worship, what has been difficult is not being surrounded by other believers who are encouraging me what is, that what is difficult for me to believe is actually possible. I think that's what we do in corporate worship. When we get together, when we read the same scripture, when we take the same communion, when we sing the same songs of truth to God, it suddenly becomes easier to believe those things. And I know in my own private life, you know, like many songs we sing, I'd say like, yeah, 100%, I believe that. And yet, living out my daily life, it's difficult to act like that is true. But the very simple act of gathering together with other believers and actually joining, sort of standing shoulder to shoulder and being able to worship God, actually makes it more true in our lives. It makes it more real. It makes it more tangible. And because of that, we are able to sort of spur one another on to encourage one another to join and band together so that we might believe in God together. You know, it's interesting... Uh, Peter, when all of the people got saved after his sharing of the gospel there at the birth of the church, he didn't say, okay, go back to your own homes now. You're all going to go off as a bunch of individuals and just follow God. You know about Jesus now, so you should be able to take care of it on yourself. No, no, no. They cloistered together. They stayed together. They hunkered down and built the church as a community. And in so doing, they taught themselves rhythms of corporate worship. Then persecution struck the church, which actually uh, impelled the church outward into mission. But they went out then in mission or on mission to share the gospel with the world that so desperately needs it. They go out and in so doing, they, you know, actually carry this method, this model of corporately worshiping together, corporately devoting themselves to praising God and to studying teaching and studying scripture. They carry that with them so that it might multiply. They didn't go out empty-handed. They didn't go out saying, you know, okay, well, I'll go figure this out for ourselves as individuals. No, they went out together. But the other component of worshiping is actually worshiping as an individual. And can I just say that this is going to become increasingly more and more important for us as believers. That who you are as a believer is not just who you are, you know two times a week when you gather with your church friends, but it's actually who you are every single moment of every single day. And your life in Christ, your life as an individual member of the church, is actually grounded completely in how well you are worshiping Jesus. And we do that through uh, spiritual habits and postures. Maybe you've heard them called spiritual disciplines in the past. These are just ways in which believers throughout all of history, both in scripture and then even uh, the church post-scripture, has really found ways to, to be able to connect with Jesus. And maybe no one's sort of told you this before. Maybe it's not something that was really pressed on you. But the sort of well-being on your individual spiritual life is often very dependent on how well you're actually practicing these spiritual disciplines, on the regular rhythms of your life that you're using to connect with Jesus. It's dependent on that, largely. Now, not completely, but, but to a large degree, it's dependent on how well we're actually connecting and personally with Jesus. There's lots of different ways and rhythms. Uh, Scripture and prayer are sort of the core of all of them. Uh, Solitude, Sabbath, fasting, finding times to be with God, uh, memorizing Scripture, whatever that looks like. There's multitudes of ways. They end up, uh, as we sort of invest in them, they actually end up paying dividends more in our devotion to Jesus. Just like a relationship, any other relationship in your life, the amount of time and effort and initiative that you put into it yields benefits in being able to deepen that relationship to increase its intimacy, to increase its love. Which is ultimately what we were put on this earth to do. So find ways to build that devotion. Find ways to grow in your love for Jesus. Find ways to more live into this life of being the bride of Christ. Be the bride of Christ and be the church that you are always meant to be. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.